Okay, Jesse. Well, last week's case was absolutely tragic. What's the story this time? Despite a scandalous beginning, Jimmy and Shelly Michael build a seemingly perfect marriage, complete with a beautiful blended family and his and hers coaching roles in football and cheerleading. The all-American couple's dreams go up in smoke, however, when their house catches fire. Because within, the authorities find a charred corpse and plenty of dark secrets. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about jukes, flukes, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover this show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And we are so excited to shout out some amazing new patrons this week. Nancy K, Carla O, and Sarah P, Tolly M, Bianca C, and Salma Z. Welcome, guys. I also want to thank everyone. We got an incredible response to my call for a researcher. We are recording this on a Friday, so I'm going to be going over all of the applications and emails and CVs this weekend. And hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I will be responding to many of you. But I really appreciate it. And it's been great to see also how many of you have a background in that type of research, but also are listening to the show and enjoying it. And it really, it would be very exciting to have somebody who is so familiar with us come join us. So thank you for your responses. I think it would be smart to have someone who's familiar with us to join us. It totally makes sense because they'd be familiar with what you're looking for and how detailed you are. I mean, I do think it's it would be awesome. It would be a huge help. So I'm definitely going to be combing through those applications. If you haven't heard back from me by the time this comes out, just send me a little follow-up ping and I'll, I'll make sure I get to you as well. All right. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. I think that we actually recorded the last one before the new year was finished. So now I'm fully in the grind and I am ready, Andy, to rock 2024. Yeah. Same. So we should start by starting this episode. Yes. It started innocently enough. Just two coworkers spending their downtime, joking, and sharing little bits of their lives and stories with one another. Both respiratory therapist Jimmy Michael and Shelly Angus were in their late 20s. They both worked at Ruby Memorial Hospital, and they both had two children, an older boy and a younger girl. Both had been athletic in their high school years and felt passionately about pediatrics. Jimmy was an ambitious teddy bear of a man, and Shelly was attracted to his drive. Shelly was a tiny, youthful-looking woman with the same trim figure that she'd had in her high school and college cheerleading days, and Jimmy had certainly taken notice of that. Nothing wrong with a little office romance between equals and adults, except when those adults are married. 
Yeah, I thought you were going to throw that wrench in there. Uh-huh. It really, really puts the wrench in romance when you both are married. Also, to make this worse, Jimmy's real-life wife, Stephanie, worked at Ruby Memorial with him and his little work wife, Shelly. Not cool. Not cool, dude. A work wife who would soon become the real-life wife, the second Mrs. Jimmy Michael. Though the beginning of the relationship and subsequent marriage was more Grey's Anatomy than Brady Bunch, Shelly and Jimmy soon did create the picture-perfect blended family. Jimmy coached their boys in football while Shelly coached the girls in cheerleading. Jimmy supported Shelly in her educational pursuits, and she in turn supported him throughout his entrepreneurial ventures. To the outside world, they seemed the vision of success. But behind closed doors, secrets and resentments began to erode their marriage. And in November of 2005, when the house they had worked so hard to afford, the one that they had become a family in, was set ablaze. One spouse would die, and the other would be left with a lot of explaining to do. This was a listener-recommended case, and it includes... One of the most terrifying deaths I can possibly imagine. Well, not the most violent or gruesome that we've covered. It is psychologically very disturbing. So I will warn you all about that right off the bat. Our primary source today is the book Playing With Fire by John Glatt, as well as a 48 Hours, a ridiculous episode of Deadly Affairs, and various articles that I will list in the show's notes. So let's go back in time and talk a little bit about Shelly and Jimmy in the before times and see exactly what went wrong here. Jimmy was born in Cumberland, Maryland on February 20th, 1972. He was the second son of two boys born to a very loving and very like down-home religious family. His grandfather, father, and uncle were all Baptist pastors. Whoa. Okay. His dad was also entrepreneurial. He always had various businesses going. I think he also built and flipped houses. So I think that the pastor was less of like a livelihood and more of a calling as far as that goes. Jimmy's upbringing was very traditional Southern Baptist boy in the 1980s. Like he played football. He went to church. He had a tradition of hunting with his dad. Jimmy was a standout, however, for his sense of humor, his likability, and ambition. He was always really funny and kind of a little mischievous for his family. He dreamed really big and he felt extremely deeply. His mother talks about him getting heartbroken for the first time in high school and how devastated he was. It was clear that this is a guy who just honestly feels big and he falls in love fast. He's just a really passionate guy. In May of 1992, when he was 20 years old, Jimmy graduated with an associate's degree in respiratory therapy. I guess that he had wanted to go to James Madison University, but his parents kind of made him go to to a different school that was closer to get his associate's degree because they thought that they needed to keep an eye on him because he just was this big, fun guy, and they were a little worried about him being off in the big world by himself. Okay. (laughs) I don't know where James Madison is. James Madison is in Virginia, I think, and he was in Cumberland, Maryland. 
So he graduated with his associate's degree at 20 years old, and then he began to work towards his bachelor's degree in chemistry at West Virginia University. And that was when he also began his career at Ruby Memorial Hospital. So the goal for Jimmy was to get his bachelor's, get the work experience of working as a respiratory therapist at Ruby Memorial, and then apply for medical school. Got it. He wanted to be a pediatrician his whole life. On Jimmy's first day of orientation at the hospital, he met his first wife, Stephanie. Stephanie was a pretty student nurse about five years older than Jimmy, and the two had an immediate attraction. Stephanie said that she could remember vividly the first time she laid eyes on Jimmy. She said that he was a big teddy bear. Jimmy was as extroverted as Stephanie was reserved, and at first, that seemed like a really good thing. It seemed like they balanced each other out. In less than a year, the couple was engaged, and a few months later, they revealed to Jimmy's parents that Stephanie was pregnant. So they're not yet married, but Stephanie's pregnant. So given that Jimmy's dad was a pastor, and they were already planning the wedding, so they decided to have a secret ceremony before the wedding. It was, I think, maybe a month and a half before the actual wedding, so that they were just secretly married and, I guess, like in the, the eyes of God, married. And then they would do the one that basically Stephanie's parents were putting on and paying for. But this ended up creating a rift because the Michaels, Jimmy's parents, and Jimmy and Stephanie didn't tell Stephanie's parents that they got secretly married. Yeah, that's not cool. And I don't know if they were aware that she was pregnant. So on the day of the big wedding where she had to like wear the dress and go down the aisle, she couldn't get her dress up because she was so pregnant, and apparently a huge fight erupted about the fact that nobody had told them that they were already married and that they hadn't been invited and that Jimmy's parents were obviously there because Jimmy's dad married them. Uh-oh. This was not a very good beginning to the relationship between the in-laws, and it started to seem like maybe Stephanie and Jimmy were kind of ill-matched and maybe they had rushed into this as well. They did go on to welcome two very beloved children who were loved and desired. Son Drew in 1994 and daughter JC in 1997. But other than those two bright spots, the marriage was not going well. Okay. Jimmy was barely 25 now with a wife and two young children. So that was obviously a big financial strain when he had been gearing up to go to medical school. And according to Playing With Fire, Stephanie also secretly ran up thousands of dollars in credit card debt, which made it pretty much impossible for Jimmy to be able to afford to go to medical school. I think there was some part of him that hoped his parents would pay for it if he went, but they were like, you're on your own. You're a man. You're married with your kids. Like, you have to control your own finances in your home and decide how to balance your life with your dreams. I do feel like there should be some sort of, with careers that are needed in the world, there should be some sort of financial relief. Incentive relief. Yes. 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 For doctors, nurses, teachers. Absolutely. Or at least some help with childcare yep. or yeah. better Anything. support. Yeah. Because I think also people with families would be great to get into these industries and into these roles. And it prevents a lot of amazing people from having families because they are so in debt from trying to go into a helping profession. Well, the couple briefly separated in 1997, but they had several reconciliations. 
And they even had a vow renewal in June of 1998. Jimmy had purchased a house for them by then. And it seemed like one of those things where he like actually, they had been living in a house that was owned by her family. And like, he was kind of like paying towards the mortgage, but they were very clear that it wasn't his. So he was like, when they separate, he's like, screw this. He bought his own house. And then they reunited. And so then the family all moved in together in the house that Jimmy owned. However, only a couple months after reuniting as a family and having that vow renewal, Jimmy started working night shifts with a pretty little nurse named Shelly Angus. And poof, that marriage was done in all but name in three months. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when your relationship's just disintegrating like that, it's easy to keep it going for a long time. But like a lot of the times people the relationship fails because they meet someone else. So it's like if you already are kind of seeing the cracks it's, and then... It's very um, chicken and the egg, usually. We kind of could have probably soldiered on for a very long time, being not very happy. But then one member of the couple meets somebody and boom, it's the impetus to finally end the relationship. And it's very easy for the one who didn't find a partner or didn't cheat to be like, well, it's obviously that bitch's fault because if she hadn't come along, then we'd still be together. Yeah. But that's like kind of like what we talked about in the Betty Broderick case, which is they weren't really happy to begin with. And while having any sort of affair is completely inappropriate, it's always more likely to happen when the marriage is troubled to begin with. Yeah. So let's talk about this tiny little temptress. She's literally like five, one, maybe Five nothing and barely 100 pounds. She's that tiny little thing. Shelly was born Michelle Lynn Goots in Clarksburg, West Virginia, exactly three weeks before her future husband, Jimmy, was born. She was born on January 29th, 1972. She was the eldest child of three. She had a middle sister and a younger brother. And they seemed like they had a pretty charmed upbringing. They had a big Catholic family that all lived in the same neighborhood, a father with a very thriving business. Shelly met her best friend Renee in kindergarten, and they remained close for their entire lives. However, later, Shelly would allege that she was molested by somebody close to her family as a child. She didn't see her father that much because of his thriving business. And her mother was very Catholic and very strict. So on the outside, it definitely was one of those things where it looked like a charmed existence. She was a pretty little girl who always was made up perfectly. but. Inside, she had a lot of inner turmoil. She was raised essentially to excel, always look good, always do well, and don't get yourself in trouble. It's kind of like one of those cultures, even though they're more modern, where a lady is supposed to be in the newspaper three times and three times only when she's born, when she gets engaged, and when she dies. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's like really sad. That's like medieval. She was taught to stay away from boys and that only bad girls have sex, essentially. So only bad girls have children. (laughs) I mean, I think you're allowed to if you're married. (laughs) Shelly did excel, at least on the outside. She was National Honor Society, straight A's, student council, as well as being a star athlete. She was very passionate about cheerleading. And I'm not talking about just like standing on a court or something and going rah-rah for some guys. I'm talking about, like, the backflips, backhand springs, like, crazy athletic competitive cheerleading that is like an offshoot of gymnastics, essentially. So 
she was really successful and she was the star of her class. She was actually salutatorian. So she's second in her graduating class and she was voted most likely to succeed. Wow. This early success and parental control and this absent father that she's always trying to please and the strict mother resulted in some life lessons, let's say, for better or for worse for Shelly. Number one was that she was a winner and that to have any sort of value, she must keep achieving or at least appear to keep achieving. And that last part is kind of important because Shelly also realized that appearances can be more important than reality based on what other people's perception of you are. While she was winning all of these accolades in high school, she also had at least one shoplifting incident that got brushed under the rug and experimented with boys and alcohol when no one was looking, of course, which is all typical teenage stuff, but nothing that Shelly would have admitted to because she was trying to keep this perfect girl persona alive. And this is something that even her best friend, the one she's known since she was five years old, would say was that she was constantly finding things out that she felt like Shelly should have told her. They lived together in college. They went to West Virginia University together. They were roommates in the dorms, and then they got an apartment together. And Renee was shocked when Shelly told her when they were both 20 years old that Shelly was pregnant because Renee said that she didn't even know she was dating somebody. And they're living together, and this is her best friend. That's how close Shelly keeps things, close to the chest. Shelly's son, Alec, was born on December 17th, 1992, and her relationship with Alec's father soon petered out after he, basically, he continued to refuse to marry her. She wanted to get married to him after discovering the pregnancy. He said, no, let's see how our relationship goes, which I think is totally fair and wise. And it seemed like at the beginning, maybe he was willing to co-parent a little bit, and then when he continued to refuse to marry her, it seems like she might have kicked him out of their lives less than he was totally abandoning his son. In any case, he ended up hitting the bricks and he did not become a huge part of Alec's life as far as I know, at least in his young life. Well, Shelley was determined not to let her single mother status derail her dreams. So with the help and support of her mother, Shelley earned a place on the WVU cheerleading squad only seven months postpartum. What? Yeah. So she's doing like back handsprings, like multiple across a football field, only seven months postpartum. No. Wow. I can't even dance the same way. I mean, also, we didn't have our babies at 20. Maybe yeah. it would have been a different experience. <laughs> Just 15 years later, we would have recovered a little faster. We had all those beautiful young people stem cells still up in our body. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Well, she found the experience of cheering in front of so many spectators exhilarating. Her mother would later recall to John Glatt, Shelley did back handsprings down the whole length of the field in front of 65,000 cheering fans. Wow. That's nuts. She enrolled in the nursing program at WVU and eventually met her first husband, Rob Angus, through mutual friends at a Buffalo Wild Wings. Just like Jimmy's first marriage to Stephanie, it certainly seemed like... Maybe these two should not have rushed into marriage either. So Shelly's parents, her best friend Renee, and her small son all seemed to love Rob. They really did. He seemed like a great guy. And it just didn't seem like Shelly was ever really taken with him. In her own words, she said, quote, I was not completely thrilled or excited. He did not seem like my type, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings, so I said yes. 
Yeah, I'd say that's not how I would want the person marrying me to feel. No, I feel like if I read that, even after we were divorced, I'd feel really bad. Yeah. Or like even worse if you were still married. Definitely worse if you were still (laughs) married. Nonetheless, Shelly married Rob Angus only a year later in July of 1995. She had just turned 23 and he was like eight months younger. So he might have been 22 even. And little Alec was two and a half years old. I do feel like there's sometimes a lot of societal pressures being a single mom. I could definitely see someone rushing more into a relationship that they maybe feel is security and will help rather like more for survival than for the butterflies. Yes. And he was also reportedly very, very good with her son. Yeah. And really treated him as his own absolutely in every way. And everyone else seemed to like him. He seemed to fit into her family and her fold so well that I can see how you would end up getting swept away. One of her friends also said that she felt like being a single mother limited her dating pool a little bit because a lot of the other guys who were only in their early 20s wanted to date women that were unencumbered by children. Of course. So I think that she thought that this might have been the best she could do. Like he treated her with respect. He was kind. He was great with her son. And so she married him. It's just not necessarily fair to him. That's really not fair to him. So Renee would later say that Shelly would come to regret the marriage. She said it was a decent-sized wedding. Shelly seemed happy. And in retrospect, she wished it didn't happen. Although at the time, you wouldn't have thought anything else leaving the wedding other than these are two people who are happy to be getting married. Though Rob was an excellent father to Alec and even adopted the little boy shortly after the wedding, it soon became clear to him that his wife maybe did not love him the way he loved her or wanted her to love him. The marriage devolved into daily screaming matches. When Shelley got pregnant again with Rob's daughter, they committed to marriage counseling, and they were both very excited to welcome their daughter Kylie in October of 1996. During this period, Shelley also graduated with a bachelor's degree in nursing and a minor in child development. She began her nursing career at Ruby Memorial Hospital in the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Shelley did make a big impression upon her colleagues, and not all of it was favorable. Far before she stole her husband, Stephanie, Jimmy's first wife, worked with Shelley and said, quote, she, she said this on the 48 Hours, but it's also in the book. She was all about flirting with the boys that we worked with. Cheerleader moves in the unit. She just would come over and do this high kick to her ear and just kind of giggle and then keep walking. In the PQ? In the PQ! This is children in an intensive care unit and you're flirting and grabbing ass and doing high kicks? Yeah, no. How about you don't high kick around my child? Completely inappropriate. I'll high kick you out of here. There was another guy who was really good friends with Jimmy, and I think he was also a respiratory therapist, and he said, quote, she still thought that she was a college cheerleader. She just loved the attention. And Jimmy was only too happy to give it to her. Jimmy had always been pretty big boned. He was just a big guy. And his brother was more lean and athletically built. And so I think he had had some sort of hangups, like his family implied that he had had some hangups growing up. And also his football coach had made him go on a diet. So that was something that he felt a little insecure about. And as a result, never felt like he got like the cheerleader type, the cheerleader girl. 
And he, one of his roommates said that he said to him at one point before he met Shelly that cheerleaders were like his ideal type and like he would even watch like the cheerleading competitions when they were on ESPN. Like watch or watch? I mean, it sounded like he was just like flipping through the channels and was like, ooh, look at this. Not like, look at this. <laughs> you see what I'm picking up, what I'm putting down? I am definitely picking that up, but I, I don't, I hope, I hope it wasn't like that. When he meets Shelly, who is like this tiny little former college cheerleader who can still do all of the back handsprings and everything that she used to do, and she's giving him a lot of attention, this was very seductive. And that's what his parents said kind of too. They actually like Shelly, and we'll get into that, but they said that she gave him this attention and she made him feel good about himself and seen, which we talk about a lot. I mean, it goes for a lot. Somebody feeling like they're flattering you and giving you attention and they seem like they understand you, that will go very far, much farther than physical looks. Okay. But I mean, she had that going for her too. And she can do backflips, standing and back handsprings. I don't think they would have characterized their relationship as like tawdry or this simplistic breakdown of why they were attracted to each other. To the two of them, and in their own words, they were merely friends and coworkers who had turned to each other for support while they were both in bad marriages with young children. It was just during, like, dead times in the hospital when they're working the graveyard shift. They would end up in the break room, and they'd be talking about their days and their challenges, and they had similarly aged kids, and they both were in not great marriages, and they just started chatting and then one thing led to another and all of a sudden they're emotionally having an affair and that very quickly turned into a romantic and sexual affair. Yeah. Some people believe that Shelly had seduced Jimmy on purpose. Like she set her sights on him. I think his family had a little bit of money and that she had purposely undermined his marriage and kind of lured him with sex and flirtation. But it's so obvious that this is a very much it takes two to tango situation. You can't really seduce the unwilling. And it looks like he must have been at least looking for trouble. As Christmas 1998 approached, Stephanie wasn't completely ignorant to the rumors that were flying all around her workplace about her husband and their married coworker. When she received a hang-up call at their house more than once, you know she star 69 to that bitch. So she did the star 69, which would give you the phone number. And the next day she went to work and said, does anyone know who this phone number was? And there it was on the top of the employee directory, Shelly Angus, right there. Wow. She said that was probably when she deeply knew, but she wasn't ready to blow up their marriage yet. So she was like, I just want to give this some space and see what happens. And I think there was even a hope that it might just blow over. Like maybe this is like a flirtation and it's going to blow over. The shifts will get switched. Something will happen. But it didn't. I mean, this was actually very heartbreaking. She had an honest to goodness love actually moment. You know, the worst, the one that breaks my heart the most, like scenario in love actually with Emma Thompson and Snape, Alan Rickman. And she finds the necklace and she gets all excited because her husband's giving her the necklace and then Christmas morning comes and he doesn't give her the necklace and he gives her the Joni Mitchell CD. Yeah. And she just knows then that he's having an affair. That happened to Stephanie. 
she found a gift hidden in his closet and she thought it was for her. And then Christmas morning came and went. He gave her something completely different. He didn't give it to his mom. He didn't give it to anyone else she knew. And it was a very clearly feminine present. And so she's like, okay, so there's the phone calls, but then there's also this. And this is way less subtle. Around this entire time during the holidays, at one point, Stephanie, I think, had taken the kids to visit her family. Okay. And apparently Rob Angus, Shelly's husband, had staked Shelly and Jimmy out and had caught Shelly leaving their house, leaving Jimmy and Stephanie's house on a camcorder. And he had sent the tape to Stephanie asking just what in the hell was her husband doing with his wife. Yeah, but also don't put that on her. Yeah, I think he was just like, look at what my wife is doing with your husband. Look at my camera with the flip open <laughs> video, handy cam. I'm just imagining it's like one of those really big camcorders. <laughs> like he lugged it all the way there to spy and catch them on tape. And it's like, this is like 90s cheaters over here. Cheetahs. Cheetahs. Also, there is like drama in this place. This is like real Grey's Anatomy because three out of four of these people work together. And I also found out later in the story that Rob's sister, so Shelly's sister-in-law, also works at the hospital. Yeah, this is so incestual. This is really messy. So unsurprisingly, both marriages broke up in the new year and there were heated arguments and significantly bad feelings on both sides, but particularly with Stephanie and Jimmy for good reason because... This is her workplace. She says later that she could not quit or find another job that was as well-paying. This was the big hospital in the area. So she was just stuck working with them. Yeah, it's really not fair. It's just really not fair. She's like, I had to pay my mortgage. I'm a single mother at this point. Shelly filed for divorce from Rob in January of 1999. And this is her, again, putting on a good front. She did not even tell her best friend, Renee, that she had another man waiting in the wings. Well, she doesn't seem like she tells Renee anything. I know. I'm like, Renee, are you really her best friend? She doesn't have any best friends. I don't think she does. Doesn't sound like she's a real girl's girl, to be honest. Instead, she claimed that Rob had been verbally abusive to her and six-year-old Alec. And this is really rich. She said that she could not trust him because he watched porn. Shut up. Yep. She said with a straight face, listen to this quote, I couldn't trust him for various reasons. He had a problem with pornography. And that is the same as cheating on somebody. I feel very strongly about that. So she's actually cheating on someone, but she feels like jerking off to pornography is cheating. Yes. She seems to think that jerking off to pornography is totally equivalent to having a full-blown emotional, romantic, and sexual affair with your married coworker. Samesies. I mean, we can all have our own feelings about porn, obviously. Still, it just might be Shelly. She is egocentric and she wants to put on this good front and she wants everyone to believe that everything is somebody else's fault. By spring, however, Jimmy and Shelly had hard launched their new relationship. They introduced their kids to each other and in the summer they met each other's parents. The kids got along for the most part. The little girls especially were best friends. And Alec was a little bit older than Drew. And it seems like he wasn't less excited about being part of this Brady Bunch, which I can imagine was hard on him because he's already been through this with his mother, even though he was very small when it happened. And I think he had a very close relationship with Rob, her first husband. So I think that he didn't take very well to this situation and sometimes took it out 
on Drew, who was younger and smaller. So that wasn't great. But other than that, for the most part, the family did seem to gel together. They arranged their custody agreements so that they all had the kids at the same time. So basically, they had like no kids or all the kids and really wanted them to gel as a unit. Jimmy's parents did take a shine to Shelly. Obviously, it was hard to get over the whole divorce thing to begin with because they did not feel like what was going on with Stephanie and Jimmy should have warranted a divorce at that point. And they weren't psyched that he had clearly had an adulterous affair. However, the fact was that he was madly in love with Shelly. So I think that the fact that he was very serious about her, they were planning on getting married, that he was committed to raising this family with her, made them feel like, you know what, maybe these things happen. Maybe Stephanie wasn't the love of his life. We all kind of suspected that. And then he was blown away by this woman who seems like she's really his match and he's head over heels for her. And the affair was obviously a no-no, but if they're going to spend the rest of their lives forever and ever together, well, you got to break a couple eggs to make an omelet. So I think that's kind of where their headspace was about this one. They said that she was really outgoing and that was great. And she seemed so obviously crazy about their son and he was just glowing that they could not not accept the relationship. However, there was one thing she said to them when they initially met that did seem odd. Okay. Jimmy's dad, Denny, said, we liked her. She was outgoing and friendly, and it seemed like she was good for the family. But, and he went on to describe about how he had basically built this beautiful, gorgeous brick house that was like a mansion on a hill, and they had landscaped the whole area and put in a pool and really made this place look great. So he's like, if you're just coming to tour this house, you think we have a ton of money. And when she was looking around the house, she said to Denny, why don't you just go ahead and give us our inheritance? What? Yeah. He later said, it kind of hit me funny. I just brushed it off and said, well, I'm spending Jimmy's inheritance. So, which... As you should. I don't want any money from my parents. As long, if they can take care of themselves, like, is like I can use their money to take care of themselves in their old age, I mean, and provide for them. That is all the only gift I need. That is so weird. It's so weird to be like, well, maybe we, you could just give us an advance on our inheritance. And he's like, what are you talking about? This is very soon after she met them, too. That's weird. Yeah. So Jimmy's parents felt like Jimmy had maybe insinuated that he was still planning on going to medical school, that he was going to someday be a wealthy doctor. He's like showing her this house that his parents have. So maybe she got the feeling that he was going to be a rich man and she was going to, in due time, not have to work at all. Their divorces were both finalized by the end of 1999, and Shelly and Jimmy got engaged in March of 2000. Stephanie said that she was totally blindsided by this. She found out from the announcement in the newspaper. To make things worse, again, she's still working with these people. And she said that after Shelly got engaged and her place in Jimmy's life was solid, she would be fake nice in front of any coworkers. But then when they were alone, she would taunt Stephanie about how she had taken her man. And she would say, well, next is your children. I'm going to take your children too. And they're going to love me more than you. Why would you even do that? That's what Stephanie said. She said it was vicious. It was awful. There was a lot of stuff going on, too, because I think at the time that she said this to her, Stephanie and Rob had started dating. 
So the <laughs> cheated no. on mem. Yes. So it didn't last. I don't know for how long the spouses who had been cheated on were together, but they did date for a little while, which is so crazy because this happens more than you think. I would imagine that you would find comfort in hating your past spouse. <laughs> it happened to Shania Twain, and I think she's still married to that guy. Her husband, Mutt Lang, had an affair with, I think, her assistant, and it blew up their marriage. And now I think she's still married to her assistant's ex-husband. And it happened recently, too. Did you hear about the Good Morning America anchors who had an affair? Yeah, I didn't know one of them was married, though. That was what the... They were both married, but apparently they were both secretly going through divorces. At least that's what they're saying. And so they say that behind the scenes, they were separated and getting divorced. And when they started their relationship and their partners knew about it. But when it exploded in the media, it certainly didn't seem that way because it seemed like they were having, like they were caught in a secret jaunt and his hands were all over. And reportedly, their ex-spouses are now seeing each other. Okay. So it's a thing. I'm not mad at it. No, I don't know if that's like if Shelly was feeling some sort of feelings about it. So she's saying these horrible things to Stephanie. I don't think she really has a place to do that. No, but this just feels like a hostile work environment for sure. Sounds like a nightmare. Could you imagine like looking over a little kid that's in pediatric ICU and like bad mouthing your <laughs> husband's <laughs> ex-wife? Like it's so low. This is like you're talking to some parents and you're like, little Timmy's going to pull through. We're doing the best we can. And then she like turns and mouths like, fuck you, bitch. I'm going to steal your children. I'm going to steal your man and your children. Anyway, we administered this amount of medicine. Shelly and Jimmy got married in May of 2000. And this time the wedding was small and the bride and groom seemed very much in love. Jimmy's mom said she cried because they seemed just so, so much in love. And they were both so happy together. After that point, though, Shelly seemed to kind of take over. Like, she was real feeling comfortable as a lady of the house. Stephanie even said later, too, that she feels like she misstepped because she was talking about Jimmy's new house back in the day and how nice it was that she and the kids had moved in with him because it was so nice. And she's like, I think that was when she first got the inkling to get her little claws in him. So Shelly moves in and she takes right over. After they got married, Stephanie was no longer allowed to communicate directly with Jimmy. So anything about the kids and custody and scheduling holidays had to go through Shelly. So Stephanie had to talk to Shelly. She wasn't allowed to talk to Jimmy. She wasn't even allowed to have her ex-husband's cell phone number. That's crazy. That's crazy because I personally feel like the co-parents need to manage their children's relationship. And it's not the business of the step-parents to get involved unless that's part of your co-parenting dynamic. Yeah. She was really running the household at that point. Over the next few years, which was, I think, about like the next four-ish, four or five years that they were married, the new blended Michael family seemed to really thrive. Shelly went back to school for her master's. Jimmy got a better-paying job in pharmaceuticals. And he would go on to eventually, after Shelly got her master's, launch his own medical supply company. They bought a big, beautiful four-bedroom house, and Shelly got a big SUV that had the vanity license plate six-pack. Oh, my God. No. Because it's the two of them plus four kids. And for her six-pack, I'm sure. She obviously had a six-pack. She dressed the kids in matching clothes, and there was never a hair out of place. 
This is what Jimmy's parents said. They said that she dressed those kids to the nines and she was very much about appearances. The house had to look perfect. The kids had to look perfect. She had to look perfect. They went to church. They went to soccer games. When the kids got a little older, Jimmy began coaching the boys in peewee football while Shelly started coaching the girls in cheerleading. They were assisted by another married couple who had almost the same age kids, older boy, younger girl. It fit right in with the family. And this couple had the unfortunate name of Bobby and Kelly Teets. Maybe it's just coming from a farm, but I think everyone kind of feels that way. But it's like evoking some images of cow milking for me. Teets. Yeah, but it's like spelled T-E-E-T-S. So they became best friends with the Tietzes. They spent four or five days of the week basically together over the next few years. Oh, my God. They were very, very close. They would carpool the kids. Like, the kids would spend time at each other's houses. They were doing all of their sports practices together. So this was a lot. Shelly became a nurse practitioner, and she was making bank. She was doing very well in her career. Jimmy started Mountaineer Home Medical. And by early 2005, it seemed like Jimmy and Michelle had really perfected life. They were both successful. They both had great careers. They had these beautiful kids. They were involved in their community and their kids' sports, involved in their church. But only five years into their marriage, there were definitely problems. Jimmy's family and ex-wife had long worried about Drew, Jimmy's son. Shelly seemed to be on his case constantly about things, like she would pick on him more than the other kids. Some people said it was like, oh, it just seemed like, you know, older brothers hazing a younger brother, like it's just a brother relationship. But other people thought Alec was more like bullying towards Drew, which was probably coming from his mother if he was getting away with that type of thing. They also noticed bruises on Drew. So there was concerns about how Drew was being treated in the home. Furthermore, a friend of Jimmy's said that he did suspect that maybe Shelly was being unfaithful. One day after Bible study, Jimmy had pulled his friend over to the side and confided that he had received a package in the mail that contained one of Shelly's sweaters in it, and there was a note that read, keep your whore wife away from my husband. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is not a good sign. I mean, he's got to be thinking, too, how he got into his relationship with Shelly. Yep, you lose him like you get him. Yep, exactly. Or you get him like you lose him. I think you lose them like you got them. Yeah, I think you were right the first time. I was joking. (laughs) So this friend said that the package was sent anonymously, so there was no other identification about who this was. Or at least Jimmy said he didn't know who had sent this. He had, of course, asked Shelly, and she was like, I don't know what they're talking about. This friend said that he was, like, going to prey on it and try to figure out what he should do, and it never really came up again. Okay. Jimmy did tell another friend, though, that he was frustrated by the lack of intimacy in their relationship. It seemed like after four and a half years of the marriage, Shelly's interest in having sex with Jimmy had disappeared. So he's getting the sweater in the mail, and he's also feeling like she's no longer being intimate with him. Yeah. So who's she being intimate with? Yes, exactly. Because how old are they at this point? It's like... Oh, they're like in the early 30s. Yeah. So for girls, that's like... Prime of your life, baby. Yeah. There was also financial stress in the home as well. They had had to sink a lot of capital, so a lot of their nest egg, into starting Jimmy's business. 
And it did not seem like Shelly was happy about it, even though he had worked really hard to support her so she could get her master's. Now it seems like even though she had this expensive education and she was making so much money as a nurse practitioner, she didn't really want to work. Yeah. So she had been doing like a part-time role and due to some administrative changes, I think that the hospital was expanding. They needed her to do 40 hours at that point. And it was kind of non-negotiable. It's like, if you want to stay on at the hospital, you have to put in 40 hours. We need you full time. And so that was from the hospital. But also Jimmy was saying, that's great because the kids are older. They're all in school. They require less care at home. And we need the money because we just put so much money into my company. So she wasn't exactly happy about this change of events because I think she'd been working part-time for quite a while. So he was trying to do a lot of things to appease her. So if there's like little things that came along that she wanted, he was happy to give it to her. And one of those things was a life insurance policy. Oh. (laughs) Just one of those little things. Just little nothing things. I just really want a life insurance policy. Just a little security. Just a little security for the kids if anything happens. In February of 2005, he took out a $500,000 life insurance policy. And this was at Shelly's insistence. His dad said later that he wanted to just do $250,000, but she insisted on it being $500,000. And they also took out a $200,000 policy on Shelly's life. Now, to be fair, I guess that she had a $300,000 policy through her work. So essentially, they would have netted the same had one of them died. Despite the fact that they were not having sex and were already cash-strapped, Shelly also wanted Jimmy, during the summer or fall of 2005, to reverse his vasectomy so they could have a baby together. And that was one that he was not going to budge on. They had four children between the two of them. They loved those kids. They loved them like they were their own. He did not seem like he would wanted to have another baby. And I think that this also might have been some sort of peer pressure or her competitive nature because I know around this time Renee had a baby and Stephanie, the first wife, had remarried and had just had a baby or was about to have a baby. Okay, yeah. So I feel like that's less about wanting to have a baby, especially if she's not even sleeping with her husband and more about like wanting to win. So he said absolutely not to that. We're not having another baby. No. Then you'd have to change your license plate to seven pack. It's like a hundred bucks, so... And it wouldn't really go with your whole midriff motif. Yeah. So when Shelly got excited about a potential new business opportunity, he did want to support her in that because that was something that he could give her. So their best couple friends, Bobby and Kelly Teets, both worked for an industrial uniform manufacturer, and they knew someone who did embroidery for local sports and church leagues. And that person had done that professionally, and they worked with them whenever somebody ordered something that had to be embroidered, like hats or I don't know, jerseys or whatever. So Bobby suggested that the two families could collectively go in on buying this professional embroidery equipment and go into business together. They're obviously very hooked into the youth sports teams in the area, and they thought that this could be a very good sideline to make some extra money. Well, obviously, Jimmy had just started his own business, so he had really no time or spare capital to spend. But he was excited for Shelly to be excited about something and to feel like maybe if she grew that business on the side enough, she could cut back at work or quit work because she seemed unhappy in the hospital. 
So he said he'd support her, but he just really couldn't run it. And so they decided between the two couples that it would be Shelly and Bobby who would be in charge of this new venture. Well, Shelly was determined to make this side business work. And it seemed like Jimmy was very set on helping her, even though those close to him thought that the whole thing was absurd. His dad, Denny, told John Glatt that the venture was, quote, the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Oh, no. He said that he knew as a pastor that a lot of these church leagues didn't really pay. They expected things to be donated, of course, or they would pay late or on installments. And there just wasn't any business in the youth and church league embroidery business. Yeah. And he knew at this point that Shelly was making $65 an hour as a nurse practitioner, and that's over $100 an hour in today's money. And he could not imagine that she was going to be able to make anything close to similar to what she was making and what she had worked very hard to achieve going through lots of schooling to get that title and that position. But no matter what Denny said, and he tried to introduce Jimmy to a friend of his who was in the embroidery business to show him how hard it was and how hard it would be to get up and going and maintain. Yeah. But he said Jimmy just really wasn't having that. He just said, well, if that's what she really wants to do, I'm going to let her do it. He wasn't going to stop her and force her to do a career that she no longer wanted to do, which is supportive, of course. Like he was like, we'll make it work if this is something that she really wants to do. Jimmy even fronted the money for Shelly and Bobby Teets to attend a seminar in Chicago about, this is very on the, the nose here, how to start an embroidery business. Wow. That was the seminar. It was like a four or five hour seminar that was taking place in Chicago. Shelly booked the hotel room for the two of them on November 17th, 2005. And that's right. You may have noticed that I said room in the singular. A one-bedroom hotel suite with a singular king bed for two married people. Oh, my God. Jessica. Wow. Yeah. Well, later, Jimmy would say that he did know about this. He said that they were trying to cut costs. And since it was a one-bedroom, it had a door that closed and a pull-out couch. They're that close. You know what I mean? Like, he thought that. Yeah. And one of his friends was like, you are insane. I would never send my wife with some other guy to go to a city together and spend a night together in a singular hotel room. Yeah, no. And he was like, I trust my wife. You trust your wife who you're not sleeping with. Who's getting mysterious sweater slut shames in the mail. What did his wife have to say? Kelly really trusted Bobby for sure. And she looked at Shelly like her best friend. But Shelly doesn't have any best friends. We already established that. I know. So it's like you see her as your best friend, but she doesn't see you as her best friend. It's really funny, too, because like Renee is talking about Shelly being like, we were best friends. And so is Kelly saying the same thing. But you never hear who Shelly thinks her best friend is. She doesn't consider anyone her best friend. Me, myself, and I. Yeah. So if Shelly wasn't sleeping with Bobby Teets before this trip, she's certainly had plans to. This man, who I may remind you, is also her husband's best buddy in town. Yeah. And her friend Kelly's husband, which we just talked about, they packed swimsuits for the hotel's pool and hot tub. So obviously they were... In November in Chicago, mind you. Yep. And this isn't quite in Chicago. It was actually at the Marriott O'Hare Airport Hotel. Shut up. Where... 
all of the hot affairs occur. So it's like one of those like indoor hot tub pools. <laughs> yes, it is. Nothing says S-E-X like the airport hotel. Oh, the O'Hare Marriott. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the one. You probably know what that one looks like. They must have been cooking this up. Like, they both maintained that this was the first time anything happened between the two of them. But it seems unlikely given that later surveillance footage would be pulled from the O'Hare Marriott. And it would show them coming in to check in and they were already holding hands and kissing. Yeah. No. So it's been going on. It's been going on. There's no way this was the first time. We're not stupid, guys. Also, they're like checking in at 10 in the morning. So they had to be on that flight really early. That's not, it's not like they had too many cocktails or something on, on their 8 a.m. flight. Well, they definitely could have. I mean, they might have hit those little Mr. and Mrs. T's Bloody Marys hard. So they were definitely canoodling. And to make this even worse, Bobby had just fallen on hard times. He did not have a high school diploma. He was a high school dropout. And he had worked as a delivery driver for 10 years for that uniform maker company. And they had just told him that they were reducing his pay. They were essentially kind of forcing him out by saying, we're cutting your pay in half so you can take it or you can hit the bricks, essentially. And he was so bummed out about it that Jimmy had just offered him a job. He had only been working for Jimmy, I think, for about a week at this point when they went on this trip. And Jimmy was so generous that he hired him at, I think, even more than what his previous company had been paying him before they gave him a pay cut. And he was like, this is great because if you're working for me, you can also carve aside a little time for the business, for the embroidery business. So this is not only his best friend's wife, his wife's best friend, but also his boss's wife. Yeah. Like, Bobby Teets, what are you doing? Andy, the holidays are over. Thank goodness, they were fun, but it's a lot. And that means it's finally time for self-care January. Yep. And you know what is a huge part of that for me? Blissy. Who knew that a better pillowcase is all you need for better sleep? So let's talk about practicing self-care while you sleep. Set yourself up with better sleep with Blissy's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, while cotton literally absorbs it off your face. Say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair. There are definitely a lot of dupes out there that claim satin can be an alternative to silk, but that is just not the case. The pillowcase, wink. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious all-natural fiber. Silk is more breathable, moisture-wicking, and gentle. It's also more durable and long-lasting. Think of it as an investment in getting better sleep and waking up feeling ready to take on the day. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable and durable. Yeah, definitely. My Christmas present to myself was buying some premium skincare products that I really wanted for a long time. And I would really like to keep uh, the skincare products and those dollars that I spent on my face and not on my pillowcase. Yeah. Also, I can't tell you how much better I sleep with the Blissey eye mask than any other eye mask I've ever used on any flight or in bed. It is 
so luxurious. It feels like you're not wearing anything. It keeps out all the light. It's miraculous. I love all of their products. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 days at blissy.com slash lovemurder and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. One of the hardest things in life is when you know what is good for you, but your brain is just getting in the way. Like, you know what you should do and what's good for you, but you just can't do it. Yeah, I feel like that's like finally getting our book club started. I'm trying, but I just can't get there. Therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so that you can work for yourself rather than against yourself. It can be so hard to overcome racing thoughts and self-doubt and questions. Everyone has so much going on constantly, and it feels like the world just throws more and more noise our way. Finding space to really process, to learn positive coping skills is so important. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people try to clear their head in January and they come to this realization that maybe these are things that they could use help with. And one of the most important things to know about therapy is that it's not just for people who have experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants space to process and help learn positive coping skills. Yeah, I think every time I've had a therapy session and I've just been kind of word vomiting and talking (laughs) out loud about things that maybe I feel are mundane or not important to my life and my mental health, I self-discover. And most of the time, the person I'm speaking to is able to help me figure out how to process things in a way where I'll just be more productive, which is what I'm looking for. And it's just been so helpful. Absolutely. There's like little occasions where I find myself losing patience As a working mom, I feel like I'm not meeting goals. And sometimes it's that my goals are too strident that I'm setting for myself. I'm not giving myself enough space and time. But those are things that I can't figure out on my own, to be honest. Yeah, and you shouldn't have to. Exactly. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's online and designed to fit with your busy life. After filling out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if for any reason it's not a fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lovemurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. After they went swimming and hot tubbing, so they went to the seminar and then they decided to throw their suits on. The How to Have an Embroidery Business Seminar. How to Start an Embroidery Business Seminar. They went to that. It was very fascinating, I'm sure. And then they went swimming and hot dubbing in the indoor swim area. Well, they watched those those planes come in. And then they said they had several cocktails and had some dirty, filthy sex multiple times on the singular king-size bed in their room. Shelly said, quote, I just got sucked in. It's ironic because I value fidelity so highly. Oh, my God. Something's ironic about that statement, but I don't think it's your, it's your use of irony for what you're using it for. Oh, my gosh. Is she forgetting that we know that her current marriage started with infidelity? <sighs> so on the plane ride home, they decided to continue the affair, but in secret, obviously. This was not a 
conversation, at least Bobby Teets thought, that they were going to break up their marriages for. This was something that was like a little bit of side fun when they could get it. But like, let's not go crazy here. Let's not fall in love with one another. Okay. And Bobby said, quote, I mean, I had a lot at stake. I wanted to keep it secret so bad because I worked for him. I wouldn't have a job if he had known. And also, he was my friend. (laughs) Wow, with friends like that, who needs enemies? (laughs) I wouldn't have had a job. And also, oh, yeah, he was my friend for the last seven years. Yeah, I mean, it's just there's something missing from being a normal person. Yeah, they have a chip missing here. So they continued the affair right under their spouses and children's noses over the Thanksgiving holiday. It seems like Jimmy had a tradition of going hunting with his cousin and then also his dad for the holidays. Like after they celebrated Thanksgiving, he would usually go up to where his family lived in Maryland for the weekend. Okay. So he left on a Friday night so he could be in Cumberland on Saturday morning to start. Because, you know, when people go hunting, they go like basically at the crack of dawn or earlier, like in the middle of the night, essentially, to get set up. He had left on Friday and apparently... The Tietz's daughter had had a sleepover with Kylie, Shelly's daughter, on Friday night. And so Bobby showed up on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with a box of Shelly's favorite donuts, Krispy Kremes. And the two had sex in Shelly and Jimmy's marital bed while their daughters were still asleep down the hall in Kylie's room. What? That is some risky business. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Also, Deadly Affairs is not a place, like, I should never use it as a source of research. It's so ridiculous. It's one of those very heavily reenactment ones. And Susan Lucci is just a hoot. She's the narrator. But in the reenactment, they literally have Shelly answering the door seductively. And Jimmy Teets, the, the actor playing Jimmy Teets, is, like, giving her some donuts. And she takes the donuts and, like, throws the box, like, over her shoulder and, like, all the donuts rain down. And then she grabs him and pulls him into the house. And I was like, ew, no, there's hair and dirt all over those donuts and there's frosting all over your floor. What is going on? (laughs) And then you have your teenage kids coming out and being like, why are there donuts all over the floor? Why don't you guys have your clothes on? What's going on here? They're doing it. Those donuts stole my clothes. (laughs) Those donuts give you dirty thoughts. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't get a Krispy Kreme or you'll get something. Oh, wow. There's I was going to go there for that. And I'm there's a lot of different. There's a lot of cream filled situations we could talk about that we are not going to go or glazed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's pretty much your options. Cream filled or glazed. (laughs) Yep. So Jimmy was hunting with his cousin and his father that weekend, and he returned home on Monday. So he kind of took a long weekend, and he had to make it back in time because he also coached Drew's basketball league. So he got home in time to go to practice. His assistant coach said that he was really exhausted because he had been up early and hunting all day, and then he had had to do the drive. So he was pretty tired. Shelly said that when she came home from coaching the girls' cheerleading practice, he was exhausted from all of those things. And he was pretty much almost passed out in front of the TV. Now, it sounds like at this point, their kids were with their ex-spouses. So it's the two of them alone in the house. Okay. The next day was Tuesday, November 28th, 2005. And Jimmy had a really big day after taking five days off for the holiday. He had to deliver, I think it was like a sleep apnea 
machine to a home of parents who had a newborn baby, and he needed to show them how to use it. And obviously, they were very concerned. So that was a very important delivery that he had to make. And there was a lot of orders that he needed to do. And his employee said that he was usually in the office at 7 a.m. or at least before 8. So when 8 went by and then 9 a.m. went by, yeah, no. And he wasn't there. It was very strange. Meanwhile, one of the Michaels' neighbors was a 37-year-old named Sean Alt. And he was friendly with, I think they were like two doors down. He was friendly with his neighbors, not just because they were neighbors, but also because he was a respiratory therapist also at Ruby Memorial. And why all these people live there is because it is, I think, just under a mile or just over a mile from the hospital. So it's a great place for people who work at the hospital to live. Okay. And he had been very close to Jimmy, especially when he had worked in his role as a respiratory therapist. So Sean also happened to be a volunteer firefighter, and he had worked a long shift, but he was going to be on call in a little while at the firehouse. So he was just running home to do a quick shower, and he was going to get his stuff, and then he was going to go in and basically take a nap in the break room at the firehouse or whatever they call the on-call room until he was, like, officially on and hopefully get another, a little bit of rest before there was any calls. And so he said that he had pulled into his driveway sometime after like 8:10 he believed and he thought he smelled smoke he thought he smelled something that he could differentiate between like a chimney fire and when it was something that was like burning what it should not be exactly something that wasn't supposed to be on fire yeah he said it smelled like a house fire like the burning of walls and insulation and that smell versus wood smoke But he didn't see any smoke. So there's no smoke. So first he went around his house. He, like, did the perimeter of his house to just make sure his house was okay. And then he, like, looked down the block and he just didn't see anything. So he went in. He took a super fast shower. And he came out. He said that he was still troubled when he came out of his house 10 minutes later that he still kind of smelled the smell. So he even tried to call in and nobody answered because he was calling into the firehouse to see if there had been another fire in the area. And maybe that's what he was smelling. But later he found out that no one had reported a fire in the area. So he thought that was strange. He said that he got into his car at 820 and he left. It was around 820. And he said that he came to an intersection and he saw basically Shelly was like also at the intersection. And usually he waved to her. I mean, he did wave to her this time. And he said that she was known for having kind of a temptuous attitude at the hospital. Like sometimes she was nice, sometimes she was mean. So when she did not even acknowledge him and just kind of sped through the intersection that was like, sounds like it was still kind of in their neighborhood. He was just like, whatever, she must be having a bad day. But he 100% saw her, saw the vanity license plate, saw the whole thing. Okay. So then he went to the firehouse and he went to take a nap. But only a couple hours later, Sean would be woken to discover that his neighbor's house on Killarney Drive, only a couple doors down from his own residence, was completely on fire. And one of his neighbors had not survived the blaze. At 10.27 a.m., a utility worker called 911 reporting a house on fire. When the firefighters arrived at Shelly and Jimmy's house, they were able to see that flames and a lot of smoke were coming out of what would later be identified as the Michaels' master bedroom. The firefighters began putting out the blaze when, like a soap opera, Bobby Teets pulled up on the scene. Uh. So Bobby Teets had been at the office because now he's working for Jimmy, and apparently all of the employees were getting really concerned because they couldn't reach him. I think Jimmy's phone was off and it was never off. 
by 1030, he certainly should have been in the office and reachable and he had missed that appointment with the newborn parents. Something was wrong here. So they had asked Bobby, who was the delivery man and very close friend of Jimmy, to go to Jimmy's house to see if something had happened. And Jimmy literally drove up to all of the firefighters outside and the house on fire. The firefighters and the police who had been on the scene at this point said that Bobby did seem very upset and that he even tried to run into the house because he saw Jimmy's car in the garage and he knew he wasn't in the office, obviously. So they were trying to hold him back because he was like, Jimmy's in there. Jimmy's got to be in there. You got to save him. And he was like trying to get in the house himself. It's weird because it's like, even though he's obviously hooking up with Shelly, I don't think that necessarily takes away from him not wanting him to die. I'm feeling like if he didn't have something to do with the murder, that he has a whole lot of guilt right now. Absolutely. And that would probably want him to fight so that Jimmy could survive more than anything else. So at that point, Bobby tried to call Shelly at the hospital to say, your house is on fire. What the heck? But she was busy with a patient at that point. He couldn't get through. He was panicking. He called Kelly. So he called his wife and he was like, I'm at the scene right now. There's a fire. Can you just keep calling the hospital until you can get through to Shelly? Yep. Smart. So Kelly eventually got through to Shelly and Shelly took the call in front of a pick you clerk. The clerk who was working the pick you and saw this whole conversation go down said that Shelly's demeanor was very odd. She said that she was like, what? And then like kind of laughed and was like, are you kidding? And then I was like, oh, okay. And seemed very casual. And she said that she turned to the clerk and said, my house is on fire. I have to leave. Like completely straight faced. Did not seem panicky at all. There's no way that that's a normal reaction to your house being on fire. No. Whether someone's in it or not. That's a full on panic situation. Meanwhile, the firefighters had made a gruesome discovery. A charred body was found on what was left of the bed. And so basically, the fire was very much limited to the bedroom. And there was already evidence that accelerant had been used in the bedroom. Okay. And it seemed like somebody had shut the door. So the fire had definitely only destroyed really their bedroom, except for there was obviously water and smoke damage throughout the rest of the house. Okay. And it looked like the bed had basically like sunk into the floor where there had been a hole burned into the floor. And... The detective who came on the scene after the firefighter determined that there was human remains there said it was very hard to identify that there was even a person there because of the the fire damage. He also said that nobody could understand why Jimmy was home and not at work. So they tried to essentially like lift the body to see if there was another person underneath him to see if maybe he was home having an affair. But there was not. This was indeed Jimmy, and he was indeed by himself. So obviously now this is a crime scene. They're treating it as a crime scene. They don't know it could be an accident, but just in case, they have to treat it like there was a potential homicide here. And the fire department was calling out the detectives when Shelley showed up on the scene. And there's a detective named Paul Mesnot who speaks on 48 Hours. I think he's also on Deadly Affairs. So he took the call and he arrived a little after 11 a.m. And he said that he immediately noticed some red flags. Number one, the position of Jimmy's body was very unusual. It looked like he was asleep. His body was completely relaxed. And this was strange for a couple reasons. 
number one, if it had been an accident, he was an extremely healthy 33-year-old man who would have tried to get out of the fire. Given that it was limited just to the bedroom, he would have survived. The fire hadn't, like, taken the whole house up. He should have been able to get out before it just burned the bedroom. So that's odd. But then the other thing was that in very intense heat, usually, and we've talked about this in other cases, the muscles of the body contract. So the corpse is usually like gnarled in a weird, like their hands are kind of like in a claw and their body's just contracted into a strange shape because that's what our muscles do when faced with intense heat. And he wasn't. He wasn't like that. He looked like he was literally like had been charred just like sleeping normally. So that was really strange. Red flag number two was that Shelly did not seem to be having much of a reaction to discovering that her husband had just died in a fire in their house. Yeah. Now, Shelly's friends and family said that, oh, no, she was really upset. She called me and she was like, I don't know what I'm going to do without him. And I just want God to give me Jimmy back. And they dispute that she did not have a reaction. But the detectives all said that the way she was acting was definitely a red flag to them. And there was just this sixth sense going off in their head that she had something to do with this. And they were right that something was not right here. They were correct that he had been murdered. The initial autopsy would show that Jimmy did not have any soot or smoke in his lungs or any of his airways which means he was dead before the fire started because he did not breathe in any smoke. So when did he die and why? And of course, who? Well, they already had their eye on Shelly for this, and it seems like plenty of other people also called the police and said that they should take a good hard look at the wife. Yikes, it's not a good sign. Yeah. Detective Mesnot is on the 48 Hours, and he says that they were inundated with calls saying to look at Shelly. He soon found out that all was not paradise in this picture-perfect marriage, and that Shelly, as a nurse, may have access to various drugs that could poison Jimmy, kill Jimmy, paralyze Jimmy, any number of things. Shelly's former sister-in-law was a nurse supervisor. She had once supervised Shelly at Ruby Memorial, and she apparently told Rob to call in a tip and say, here's a list of readily available drugs in the PICU that could kill somebody or render them unable to move. Rob called it in anonymously, so he ratted on his own ex-wife But he did it anonymously. It doesn't come out until later that he was the one who called. I feel like that's really big of him, though. I think so, too. And I think that these were some drugs that aren't commonly tested. And I think that it was smart of his sister to say, here's some drugs that they really need to test for because it's like Tylenol. You can just grab it at any point. Yeah. And only someone in the medical field would know that. Exactly. So I think it was a very, very good tip and it does come to fruition. But of course, the toxicology reports would take weeks to come back. But in that time, investigators were definitely keeping an eye on Shelly. And they were not the only ones. Plenty of people over the next month or so reported feeling very uncomfortable with the way Shelly was leaning on Bobby Teats. Stop. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to say just uncomfortable around her in general. Nope. 
I mean, the amount of people that walked in on something sketchy between the two of them is shocking. It's like almost farcical. Like you're making a bad play about how these idiots keep getting caught trying to hook up. It was to the point where I think during a memorial or a funeral service, Kelly and Bobby were supposed to be staying at another family's home in Maryland. And Shelly asked her father-in-law, Denny, if they could host Kelly and Bobby Teets. And he said, sure. And he rearranged everyone's sleeping arrangements. And he said he got up in the middle of the night and something just seemed odd. And he went down to the rec room. And Bobby and Shelly were down there in their pajamas. And he was embracing her and kissing her on the cheek. And when Shelly saw him, she pushed Bobby away and said, oh, I was just having a hard time without Jimmy. And Bobby was comforting me. He was like, that's weird. And then they had gone to talk to a pastor to make arrangements. And she brought Bobby and was holding his hand while she's making arrangements for her husband's funeral. And the pastor said that he thought it was like a brother or a family member. And she said later it was just like Jimmy's best friend and their mutual friend. And he's like, that's really strange. That's a really strange person to be leaning on right now and like all over him and holding his hand. And even funnier, The detective knocked on the door one time when they were at a hotel and they both jumped off the bed. So, like, the detective, the pastor, and the victim's father all walked in on these idiots. Oh, my God. Keep it together, guys. Seriously. After that, the detective had a pretty good idea that there might have been an extramarital affair going on here. And he found out through the grapevine that they had attended this very romantic embroidery workshop together seminar. So he found out where they were staying and he pulled the airport security camera footage from when they checked in and found them canoodling. Thank God they still had that. Yes. Because sometimes those places deleted after 24 hours. Yeah. So before they got the footage, they had interviewed Bobby Teets and Shelly and they both denied anything weird happening. But then after they got the footage, they called Bobby Teets back in and they wanted to talk to him first because they did not think he had anything to do with the actual murder because he was alibied all morning. He was actually at Jimmy's company at the offices waiting for instructions. So they knew that he was probably the one to get the information from first and then they could use that when they interrogate Shelly. And they thought that he was going to deny, 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 and they'd have to like show him the footage of them holding hands and kissing. But apparently, as soon as they were like, do you know why you're here? He was like, oh, because I had an affair with Shelly. <laughs> he just started crying and like totally broke down and felt horrible about it. They said they didn't even have to show him the footage. They were like, he knows. And he immediately admitted to it. He said he felt terrible. He said he never wanted to break up his marriage. He was very upset about the whole thing. He felt a tremendous amount of guilt, but he had nothing to do with the murder. And he took a polygraph, and it proved that he was being honest to that effect. I know there's been times when we've had people on the scene of the crime, like, doing their best acting, but I don't know. There was just something about him that didn't make me feel like that was the case with him. Like, it seemed like he genuinely wanted to go save him. Also, Shelly's MO is not to pull people into her shit. No, she doesn't even tell her best friends anything. Yeah, so this seems like I don't think she would have even told an affair partner about what she was doing. And she is also described as somebody who, like, does everything that has so much energy and is like, I'll just do it myself. Like, she's that that type of person. Like, she planned her sister's entire wedding. And she does not strike me as somebody who would outsource or bring anyone else into the murder fold. 
so there's that as well. So he was cleared and the detective said that he did feel guilt about what happened and like what he did to Jimmy, but more so he was concerned about his marriage because obviously now this is going to come out and he's going to have to tell Kelly about it. Yeah. And he did tell the police everything, including having sex with Shelly in Jimmy's house only three days before the murder. And I guess that night he went home and he told Kelly about everything and she was very understandably upset. They had been married for 10 years and this was a person that she considered her best friend that they spent four or five days a week together. But the marriage did survive, at least through whenever this book was published. And I think it did survive for the long term. While I was Googling this case, I actually came across a Reddit post that was posted by one of Bobby and Kelly's now adult children. Wow. The prompt had been, have you ever met a killer? And they were talking about this case and how it ripped their whole family apart and Eventually, they all healed, but basically, Jimmy and Shelly's kids were like family to them. They spent all their time together, and to find out that their dad was having an affair with their best friend's like mom, and that now their dad might be a killer, because the person who was writing this said, emotionally, I had to prepare myself for the worst, which is that I never knew my dad at all, and he participated in this murder, and that he might get arrested. And it was just, like, something to do to protect themselves. And he said it was—I'm not sure if it was the daughter or the son, but the person said that it was really hard emotionally because they had been very close to their father, and it's taken years and years to rebuild that relationship. So this is definitely—when we talk about these types of crimes— and extramarital affairs in general, they really don't just affect the people involved or the spouses. They affect communities and families and children. And it's so far-reaching what one or two selfish people can do. It's shocking. But it looks like their family did heal and the Tietzes agreed to work with the authorities. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, and I'm glad that it wasn't, like, two wrongs make a right. It sounds like he really identified what he had done wrong, and he made amends for it. Yeah, I think leading up to an affair, it can be, like, so singular-minded. Yes. Like, you don't even understand what the repercussions could be just from, like, an affair, not to mention adding in a murder. I think we've talked about this in previous cases, about, like, affairs can go undiscovered. People can grow up and decide to end the affair before there's any damage done if they're good at keeping secrets, right? But if anybody gets murdering, then your affair is right out in the open. This is that man's real name. This is who that man is. And forever, any old true crime podcaster who covers this case is going to bring up this very brief affair he had, which probably only happened over maybe a matter of months. And it will define his public record for the rest of his life. Yeah. And that's probably why we all shouldn't have affairs. <laughs> Reason number one of a million. <laughs> of one million. At this point now, they have evidence, obviously, of the affair. They have a motive. They also found out about the half-million-dollar life insurance policy that had only been purchased seven months earlier, which is actually closer to $780,000 in today's money. So check, check for sex as a motive, maybe romance, check, check for marital strife, check, check for a financial motive, access to drugs, check, check. 
Access to the house where the victim was found. Check, check. We're getting a lot of checks. A lot of those green emoji checks happening here. But here is the thing. Shelly says that she has an alibi and it's airtight. So it could not have been her. All right, let's hear it, Shelly. Shelly claimed that there was absolutely no way she especially could have started the fire because she was at work at 6.30 in the morning and she was there until she got the call at 10.30 in the morning that her house was on fire. So Shelly made sure that people noticed her that day. Everyone said that 6.30 seemed early for Shelly to come in. She usually didn't come in until closer to 7, 7.30. She also was drawing a lot of attention to herself in various ways. She was signing off on things, making sure her signature got on things. She grabbed another nurse's butt, which was unusual, the male nurse said. John Glatt called it, she goosed him, is how he put it, goosed. And the guy said that it seemed very strange to him. That was not something she had previously done. So it seems like she was really making sure that she was seen. At 7.24 in the morning, she called Jimmy's phone and left a message. At 7.45, though, people were called. Shelly seemed very antsy. She seemed like she was disgruntled about something or nervous about something. And she told the detectives, first she tried to say she never left the hospital. Then she later admitted that she forgot she went to her car to get her pager. Okay. And she had stopped and said to somebody at the reception desk, I think, like, I just have to run to my car real quick and grab my pager, which, again, that person thought was strange because she never brought her pager into the hospital with her. Yep. And apparently Shelly forgot that hospitals have surveillance video. And Ruby Memorials showed Shelly leaving the hospital, getting into her Ford Expedition with the vanity license plate six-pack at 8.11 in the morning and then leaving the parking lot. At 8.20, she was spotted by her neighbor, Sean, driving towards the hospital from the direction of her home. And at 8.25, Shelly's expedition was caught on camera pulling into the employee parking lot. So at 8.27, she was seen re-entering the hospital. Yeah, so she straight up left. She straight up left. She had exactly 17 minutes from the time she left the hospital to the time she returned. And you have to remember that her house is just around a mile away. So that takes like, what, four minutes driving? Yeah, yeah. That was certainly enough time to start a fire. But how and when had she killed Jimmy? The authorities believe the answer to that would lie in Jimmy's tox report. Yes. It revealed that Jimmy Michael's heart blood had a significant level of the paralytic drug rocuronium. Rocuronium is somewhat similar to another drug that we have talked about with another deadly nurse before. Remember, succicoline sucks. We talked about with Nurse Chaz. Both rocks and sucks are neuromuscular blockers. So they are used usually in surgery or in intensive care units to paralyze the muscles so that they can intubate or do something to the person who needs help at that point. But somebody needs to be giving them ventilation. There needs to be some sort of artificial air because after these drugs hit your system, within a matter of minutes, you're completely paralyzed, including being able to breathe. So if there is not some sort of ventilation happening to the patient, they will suffocate to death. And the thing that's really scary about this is that even though they're paralyzed, 
they're completely fully conscious. If somebody yeah, no, has not horrifying. put them under anesthesia, they're completely conscious and they are able to experience intense fear and understand pain. It's psychologically terrifying. Rocuronium was readily available in the PICU where Shelly worked. How? Well, it's like just not the type of drug. It's something that you might need in a hurry if you are trying to quickly intubate a child, I'm guessing. Again, guys, every time we do anything medical, I always have to say this is not our field of expertise, obviously. And, but it's not also something that anyone would use recreationally. People aren't going to be trying to take it to paralyze themselves. I know. And you'd like to think that everyone that works at a hospital's intention is to try to do everything they can to keep everyone alive. Yes, obviously. So this is why it's readily available without having to sign it out, essentially. So now that they have an idea of what it was, they needed some more evidence that it had come from the hospital or from Shelly. And they said that digging in the debris underneath the bed, they did find the cap of a syringe. And nurses are taught never to recap a syringe. So they usually like just pop the top off. And they surmised at that point because the cap that was found was similar to those found in the hospital that Shelly had popped it off. It had, must have rolled under the bed or something. And she didn't even think about it because that is how she was used to administering medicine or she just thought it was going to be burned up in the house fire. For whatever reason, they did find this cap of this syringe. So with this information, the investigators put together the following timeline of events, also aided by the fire investigators. They believe sometime between 11 o'clock Monday night and 5 o'clock the next morning, Shelly injected a sleeping Jimmy who was sleeping in their bedroom with 50 milligrams of rocuronium. And it's entirely possible that he didn't even wake up when she jabbed him, given that she worked with pediatric needles and she's very experienced in that field. And he's dead asleep after being exhausted. So it's possible that it just felt like a mosquito bite and he didn't even realize because it would have taken a matter of seconds to jab it into him. If he did wake up, however, he would have realized that he could not move his arms and legs by the two-minute mark and he'd start having problems breathing by Four minutes, he would be completely unable to sit up or stand up. Shortly thereafter, he would be fully aware that his body was completely shutting down, but he would be powerless to stop it. Eight minutes after the injection, he would be suffocating. He would be now desperately trying to draw breath and be unable to. He'd be basically drowning in his own bed. And about another two or three minutes, they said after that, he would finally lose consciousness. And somewhere thereafter, he would eventually die. It would take 13 agonizing minutes in total, experts say. It's horrifying. Based on Shelley's statements to the police, she said that she thought that the fire started because she left an iron on the bed. No one does that. No one leaves an iron on the bed. Yes. And they said, well, that type of iron and actually all modern irons have a safety turnoff feature. And she said, oh, mine doesn't. Mine doesn't have that. I don't know why. It's just it must be faulty or something. I have to write to the company. Doesn't have that. That must be how it started. So they were thinking that basically 
she killed him and then she got ready for work early. And before she left, she turned the iron on and put it down on the bed and believed that it would start the fire and it would incinerate Jimmy and his body and they wouldn't be able to get any tissue to do a talk screen. She then went to work early. She arrived at 6.30 in the morning. She made sure people noticed her. Squeezed some butts. <laughs> she goosed some butts. And by 7.45 in the morning, she was getting concerned that no one had reported her house was on fire. Yeah. I mean, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought those pesky modern appliances with their safety settings wouldn't ignite the entire room ablaze? <laughs> yeah. So that is why she desperately had to run out because she wanted to make sure that their kids didn't come home from school before her shift was over and find their father and report it. And then they do an autopsy because they don't know why this otherwise healthy 33-year-old man just dropped dead. Heaven forbid. So she needed to go back and set the fire and she needed to do it fast while she still had an alibi. And she would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for that pesky kid, Sean Ault, who saw her leaving her house and smelled the fire. So given when he got in, I think he must have pulled in right before her. And he probably smelled whatever was burning from just the iron on whatever she left it on, whether it was... Yeah, because it would still burn something, but it's going to... Yes, it would have certainly singed things. And I think she may have put it down not on the bed, but like on um, newspaper because they said they did find newspaper and greeting cards around the bed, which seemed like odd because she was a very neat person. So she might have tried to start the fire or she was like, I think so. He must have gone in his house. Oh, was that like her kindling? <laughs> yes, that was like her kindling. And then he went in his house to take a shower and then he came out and it was even stronger because at that point, she was getting in her car to leave. So she had already gone back in. She had used some sort of accelerant to spray all over the bed, used a lighter, caught the room on fire, and then shut the door to the bedroom and pieced out of there. And unfortunately, her neighbor saw her, unfortunately for her. And then, of course, they saw her coming back in. So why did it take two hours for her house to be visibly on fire from that 8.20 time frame where she likely set the bed and Jimmy on fire to when it was finally discovered. So experts point to the fact that Shelly closed the bedroom door, which is why they also say to close your bedroom door at night in case of fire. They say that basically with the door closed and the windows closed, there was limited oxygen to feed the fire. And in fact... The fire was going, but it was probably just smoldering for about 90 minutes on that pile of newspapers and birthday cards. Eventually, that smoldering pile did burn a hole in the floor. When it actually burned the hole through the floor, a flood of oxygen came through the floor and it brought the flames back up to life with a vengeance. And they believe at that point there was a flashover where everything ignited at the same time, which caused the bedroom window to blow out at 1027 in the morning. Whoa. Yes. And that's when they saw the flames and the smoke coming out of this bedroom window. Getting some oxygen finally. So that's the theory about how she could have set the fire, but no one saw it for two hours. 
In early March, Shelly was arrested for first-degree murder and arson. She claimed that she was totally innocent and even initially tried to claim that she did not have an affair with Bobby Teets, though she would come clean about that for trial because she really could not deny that one. And Bobby was testifying. So Shelly did make bail, and she was allowed to be on house arrest while awaiting trial, but that was eventually revoked when she was found to be tampering with her ankle monitor and was even caught sneaking it off and leaving it at her father's house so she could go get a pedicure. I was going to ask if she was bedazzling it. This is so insane to me, too, because we've had, I was just brushing up on the bodybuilding case we did so long ago with flying Kelly Ryan, who was caught in Massachusetts getting a cherry red manicure. It's like, ladies, come on. You got to just do your own nails for just a little bit, okay? You got to start getting used to that. Yeah. And Shelly herself is on the 48 Hours maintaining her innocence. And the host is like, how did you think that this would go unnoticed, that you were taking off your monitor and going to get a pedicure, which I think she even booked in her own name. And she was like, did you really think that it was going to go unnoticed? And Shelly kind of smirks sheepishly and says, I think so. Like, she thought she was going to get away with this. She thought she could get away with anything. Well, she was summarily thrown back into jail, and she was not getting any spot treatments there. To prepare for trial, Morgantown's chief fire investigator went to the ATF's national laboratory to consult multiple tests over many weeks to prove that their theory of what happened was indeed possible and even likely. They also, of course, tested the same identical type of iron to see if it's at all possible that this could have happened accidentally at all, and it absolutely was not. They even disabled the safety features and said that the worst it did was scorch the fabric. Yeah, it's not going to, like, set a blaze. No, so it was just not possible. In the six tests that they performed, they found exactly the same burn patterns in this mock bedroom that they had set up with the same factors involved that they had found in Jimmy and Shelly's bedroom. They said exactly. So it seemed to prove that this was indeed how that had gone on, and that's why it smoldered for so long before erupting into flame. Shelly's defense attorney would later argue, though, that it took six tests to get it right. Like, essentially, they were looking for that response and that they had obviously not gotten the response they were looking for for the first five tests and that five times out of six, they had had a different response and so that they were just kind of fishing here. And speaking of Shelly's defense, let's jump straight ahead to the trial and see what he had to say about his crafty little client. Well, the defense conceded that Shelley was a liar and a cheater, but not a killer. They disputed the fire investigators' findings and said it was absolutely impossible for Shelley to leave the hospital, drive home, set the fire, and return in just 17 minutes. Nor that it was possible that it would take two hours for the fire to spread that way. He also said that Jimmy weighed like 200 plus pounds, 250 pounds, I think, and Shelly weighed barely 100. So how could she subdue him to inject him? But that seems ridiculous to me because obviously he was sleeping. Yeah. The defense argued that logically Shelly could not have been the arsonist. So she could not have been the one that set the fire based on the very small time frame and that the arsonist was clearly the murderer because the murderer was trying to cover up what they had done to Jimmy 
with the fire. So if she can't be the arsonist, then she can't be the murderer, is what they were saying. This feels real shaky. They're reaching here. Sure, she had access to the drugs, and sure, she was having an affair, but, quote, motive without opportunity means nothing, saying that she didn't have the opportunity to kill him or set the fire. The prosecution was saying, yes, she did. Also, this guy, her attorney, who I think suffered greatly because she sounded like a real piece of work to work with, is on the 48 Hours, and he's saying, look, she's had affairs before. She's run around before. She has a reputation for loving and leaving, but not killing. That's not her MO. It's basically like, she's the town bicycle. But hey, she doesn't usually kill him. But the prosecution argued that maybe that was exactly it. Shelly Michael is a woman who cares about appearances. She's already had a child out of wedlock and a scandalous affair that blew up her first marriage and her husband's marriage. She would have much rather, at this point, played the grieving widow than have another affair under her belt, especially given one that was guaranteed to be even more scandalous than the last. The prosecution pointed to the fact that only Shelly, Shelly and only Shelly, would benefit financially from this crime. And she'd already showed her greed by claiming ridiculous things that she was claiming for money in the fire insurance claim. Hundreds of dollars for bottles of nail polish. When we all know you don't do your own nails, Shelly, or you wouldn't have been slipping your ankle monitor off to just go get a pedicure. She also listed all of Jimmy's dress socks as things that she needed to be compensated for that burned in the fire, as well as 40 bucks for her framed wedding vows. Survey says that those vows are worth a big old zero now, thanks to you, milady. Oh my God, what is wrong with her? I think it was either in the interview or when she's actually on trial, and she's like, it was a Michaels frame. It's $40 for the Michaels frame. Michaels Arts and Crafts? I, I don't know. I'm guessing. <laughs> like, the, the prosecutor's like, and $40 for your own wedding vows. And she's like, it's the frame. The frame was from Michaels. It was $40. <laughs> the defense argued that the police had tunnel vision, and they had never even entertained any other suspects, like the ones that the defense is about to talk about. Stephanie, Jimmy's bitter ex, who had a flimsy alibi and the same access to the paralytic agent that had killed Jimmy Michael. However, Stephanie's alibi was that she was home with her four-month-old baby, the one that she had had with her new husband, whom she was crazy about. She had completely moved on from her situation here. Like, maybe if it had happened right after the affair. But this had been years at this point. She was very happy with her life. And you're saying that she took her four-month-old baby with her to, for some reason, she knew her ex-husband's schedule, even though she's not allowed to talk to him directly, and somehow came into their house that she doesn't have keys for and squirreled her way up into his bedroom and did all that with a four-month-old baby on her hip. Yeah, no. That's what they were trying to say about this. Also, you have to remember that this is actually financially hurting her when Jimmy dies because she doesn't have her ex-husband to help support their children anymore financially. The insurance policy was not going to benefit Stephanie in any way. It was only for Shelly Michael to decide to distribute to their children as Shelly saw fit. So Stephanie had no reason to want to do this at all. In the defense's closing statements, they also offered an alternative theory that Jimmy had killed himself. 
because he also had access to Rocky Ronium. And he had set it up like an accident so that his family could still claim the insurance money. Guys. They were trying to say that he would have enough time to stab himself or he'd set the fire really quick and then stab himself and just... Yeah, and with that torturous way of dying, like, no, that's not how someone kills himself. And also, like, you know how... I know how we feel about when they try to victim. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, like, kind of a victim blame, but well, also Well, it is grosser. a victim blame in this situation because his religion doesn't believe in suicide. That's not something you do. And so this is very hurtful. It's hurtful in general for parents to hear that, to hear that this woman who killed your son is trying to say that it was him. He killed himself. That's hurtful in general. But it's even more hurtful if it's something that goes against your belief system. So, yeah, they were appalled. They were appalled by that suggestion. I think, honestly, they were more appalled by that suggestion than even the Stephanie suggestion. And Shelly did get on the stand in her own defense, but she did not do herself any favors. I mean, I think that her... Her attorney was like, this is our best shot. She looks very innocent. She looks ladylike, for lack of a better word. I mean, she's clearly a good liar, but she did not come across well on the stand. She was definitely getting fired up. And the prosecutor was having none of it. And it was a woman. It was a female prosecutor. So it was none of that, like, a man looking like he's bullying a tiny little woman. And she was just getting her to admit how many times she lied. And she's like, well, I was ashamed about the affair. And I didn't want to tell the police that I left because I wasn't allowed to leave the building and I had gotten in trouble for leaving with, and she had, she had actually had gotten in trouble because Shelly did whatever Shelly wanted and she didn't care what other people thought. And so she's like, I had gotten in trouble, so I didn't want to tell them that, that I left and that's why I lied about these things. And she's like, so you're admitting you lied. You lied over a hundred times. And she's like, well, I don't think it was that much. And then they like literally went through all these lies, not all hundred, but she's like, you lied here and you lied here and you lied here. And she's just like, yeah. <laughs> My God. It was brutal. So, yeah, she did not come out looking good. So let's jump ahead. What do you think the verdict was? I think guilty. You're correct. The jury did find her guilty, but with a catch. Ugh. I don't want a catch. <laughs> the jury was able to find Shelly guilty without mercy or with mercy. Without mercy would mean an automatic mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole, versus with mercy would recommend that she at some point would be given parole. And the jury delivered a guilty with the recommendation of mercy verdict. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, one of, I guess there was like two people that were on the edge, 10 who wanted to vote just pure guilty without mercy. One of the jurors later wrote about this experience, and this is what they had to say about it. They said everyone discussed the fact that Jimmy Michael died without mercy, but I felt that sending Michelle Michael away for life, locking her up and throwing away the key was too simple. The juror decided to vote for mercy, thinking it would mean a much harder sentence as she spent each day wondering if she would ever be released. I don't know. I knew that she would have to do more in prison to be set free, the juror theorized, meaning she would have to adhere to rules that she seemed to ignore in the days leading up to this case. Other jury discussions focused on Michael's two children and their suffering, as well as whether a long term of imprisonment could rehabilitate her. So that's where they came to that decision. So has it? Shelley's first parole date is coming up in 2027. She has appealed. 
not successfully so far. She is trying to get another trial saying that her attorney was inefficient counsel. Her ex-husband, Rob, has custody of her children and reportedly does not let the kids have any contact with her. Yeah, so I would assume if Rob doesn't let the kids have contact that she is not rehabilitated. No. I mean, they're adults now, so I feel like it's probably up to them, but I know that while they were minor children, he was not letting that happen. So yeah, that's only three and a half short years away. Her trial attorney, who has since parted ways with Shelley, told John Glatt... It really sounds like she was horrible to work with. This is um, from Playing With Fire. Shelly was really pissed off that she didn't get fully acquitted. And he told her that in a sense, she had won the trial because the guilty verdict with mercy meant that the jury had disagreed, that some people thought that she was innocent. He then advised her to confess, like, fully. Well, yeah, I think that there was two people that, it wasn't that they thought she was totally innocent, but they thought that there was enough reasonable doubt. Okay. He told her that she should confess her guilt now, like basically as soon as she got into prison, reasoning that if she served 20 years before being released in her mid-50s, she would still have a lot of life to give. Yes. A lot of life to live, yeah. He said, I told her you need to begin now to acknowledge guilt, he recalled, beg for forgiveness, and over the course of those 20 years, you will get out. But if you wait until six weeks before your first parole hearing, it's going to look pretty disingenuous, and you're probably not going to get out for several more years. Well, according to her attorney, Shelley then flew into a fury having to be restrained by a guard. She started to rant and rave, he recalled. She screamed at me. Well, she flipped out to the point where one of the correctional officers in the facility had to come over and calm her down. Oh, my God. I don't know if she's going to get paroled if she is still not taking any responsibility for the crime and still denying she had anything to do with it. And she is still lying her tiny little ass off because... She talked to John Glatt for the publication of this book, and she said that she just absolutely could not have murdered Jimmy because she loved him so very much. Quote, he was my Mr. Right, my dream man. And then John Glatt writes, she said, wiping an imaginary tear from her eye. Oh, my God. Amazing. I love when um, true crime writers get a little salty. He was my Tom Cruise, she went on. I've only had four or five boyfriends in my life, and I never cheated on any one of them. Jimmy was the first man I ever really loved, and he was the first one I ever cheated on. Lies. 101, 102, 103. <laughs> keep the count going. Asked about all of her lies to police over the course of the investigation, Shelley says she wants people to know she is not a liar. I value honesty so much, she said. So even with the tiniest white lie, I get the biggest pangs of conscience. It's my whole personality. Wow, babe. You need to get a new personality. Yeah, that personality isn't really working out. <laughs> no, no. It's flimsy at best. You got to get a whole new you. She is a Delulu. Delulu. <laughs> Delulu to the max. So that's it. That's it. We'll see what happens in 2027. I think it's um, June 2027 is when she has her first parole hearing. Great. In conclusion... Andy, I think honesty is still the best policy. I think so. And honestly, if you want a little glitz and glam in your life when you've got that ankle monitor on, you should really just consider bedazzling it, not slipping it off. Absolutely. Just make it a feature, not a bug. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 